Exodus 22, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read into Exodus 23. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and uh, is struck with a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns sheaves of corn or standing corn or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbour silver or goods uh, for safekeeping and they're stolen from the neighbour's house, the thief, uh, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, donkey, a sheep, a garment or any other lost property about which someone says this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, or a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay his hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor... Uh, restitution must be made to the owner. But if it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay uh, for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it's injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid uh, for the hire covers the loss. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price uh, and she shall be his wife. If a father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they cry out to me. I certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is, in, who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take a neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear them, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons, 
Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them, let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing what is wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner for yourselves. Know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Exodus chapter 22. We're going to not dwell on every verse as we go through it because it's a big text, but we're going to touch on the main themes coming out. We're going to see the big principles here in God's Word. If you have questions about particular verses and how we might understand them, do come and chat to me after. I'll do my best uh, to try and help. But the big theme I want us to think about this morning as we come to the Scriptures is what does godliness and holiness look like in the everyday matters of life? That's a common question that Christians ask, because if we know and love the Lord Jesus, we want to be growing in our faith. We want to be going forward in our walk with the Lord. And we know that whilst that does mean that we're reading scripture and we're praying, it also must mean something for every aspect of our lives. God has given us work to do. He's given us reports to write. He's given us homes to build. He's given us meals to cook. So what does it look like to be godly in a meeting when you're dealing with an employee, giving them the final warning after a disciplinary process? What does it mean to be godly as we seek to promote peace between our children? What does it mean when you're there in the playground and you're involved in that hot-headed game of playground football and everyone's losing their cool? What does it mean when you're navigating the complicated politics of your friends in your friendship group? Well, the good news, friends, is that holiness applies to every part of life. Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means he is Lord of all. All of our lives should be lived for the Lord Jesus Christ, and God cares about every single second, every moment, every area of your life, and he shows you that because his word speaks to the great breadth and variety of our lives. That's what we've been seeing as we've been working through the book of Exodus. We've spent some time in the Ten Commandments with some very short readings, and now as we come to what's known as uh, the civil law in the chapters that follow from Exodus 20, we see how God applies the principles of his moral law to the day-to-day matters of the life of the Israelites. Now, we've recognized as we've looked at these verses that, that God's word teaches us principles, 
And so as we look at the, the detail of what's taught here to the Israelites, we're not going to take all the specific detail and apply it here and now in our lives today, but we are going to look for the principles. We are going to look for the principles which reflect the enduring, unchanging moral law of God. And as we do that with God's help, we will be enabled to live in greater godliness. Now, that isn't a novel thing. In fact, that is what God intends his people would do. And we know that because these commandments and these verses are not exhaustive, are they? They don't address every situation an Israelite would face. What do they give us? They give us illustrative principle, illustration of principle, rather than exhaustive coverage of everything. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to seek to dig into the principles and, with God's help, apply them to our lives today. Our structure this morning is going to be two main points. We're going to think about four areas of practical holiness, and then we're going to think about three motivations for holiness. And yes, that's only two points, hidden as seven. So let's launch into our first point, that practical holiness, four areas of practical holiness, and we look at the first area and we move with pace and we see that God cares about how we think about property. We look at property matters, our first point, the first area, and this is what is picked up in verses 1 through to 15. What's being applied here is the eighth commandment where God takes us into the specifics of how we should think about property. And you'll see there's a wide range of situations. We can't talk about them all, but notice in verse 1, There's a principle that if you steal property and you go and sell it, you need to repay back four or five times, depending on what you've stolen. Verse 4, notice that if you steal property and the goods can be returned, you give back the goods and you pay back again. Double repayment, because you can return it. Verses 5 and 6 pick up a, a responsibility if we damage one another's property in our fields. And verses 7 to 11 generally are addressing problems arising from borrowing other people's property or looking after things that belong to others. Now, I just want to zone in on a few things as we look at them. If you notice in at verse, uh, notice in there at verse, end of verse 3, um, what's there addressed as what happens if you steal? Notice there is a principle in the Bible of personal restitution. Personal restitution. So if we steal, we ourselves should repay the penalty for that. But the one who pays is the thief, not future generations. This verse does not support the idea of reparations where future generations have to make payments based upon the sins of their, uh, their um, relatives in the past. But there is a clear principle of personal restitution. I want us to see three key things in these verses. We see in thinking about the principles here that crime should not pay. Look at verse 1, look at verse 2, look at verse 5. A thief should repay four or five or perhaps twice the value of what is stolen. So as we think about what is a good, a just, a fair legal system, we do not want legal systems where those who commit crime are better off even when they are caught. If a theft is involved, then the criminal should not gain through their sin. Now, that has application if we're involved in lawmaking as a country and as laws we think about, but it doesn't just apply there, does it? It has application as we think about what fairness and justice looks like when we parent. 
as we think about what fairness and justice looks like, as we write rules for different clubs and groups, and as we seek to act fairly in our personal interactions. We need to remember that sin should not pay. But if that principle holds, we should also notice that any penalties should be reasonable. There are many other law codes in the ancient Near East that different nations used to govern their lives, and one that we've spoken about before was the law code of Hammurabi. Now, the law code of Hammurabi addresses what you do when theft happens, and it is brutal in how it deals with theft. If you steal from the state, you have to pay 30 times what you have stolen. If you steal from a private individual, you have to pay 10 times what you have stolen. And that, friends, would be almost impossible, would it not, for someone who has had very little means. And so what follows from that, or what follows in the law code of Hammurabi, is slavery. Now that puts it in context, doesn't it? Because if we see a double repayment, or a four times repayment, and a five times repayment, we might think, well, that feels like quite a lot. And on one level, it is. But on another level, do you see, friends, that what God is doing here is he is saying punishment should be reasonable, penalties should be reasonable. And because penalties are reasonable and restitution is being made through repayment, do you see how hopeful this is? It means that a thief could actually have reconciliation and repentance. Restoration would be possible. It would be achievable. Notice, because penalties should be reasonable. But then, also, as you think about property, let's also notice that we should look after one another's property. number of laws here speak to that, don't they? Someone has said this is a very good golden rule to live by. If someone lends you something... Aim to give it back in as good or better condition than you received it. Care for property. That applies to us as a church, doesn't it? As we borrow this building. We rent this building. We should look after this property and we should teach others to do the same. And it also applies to us as we think about renting houses. It applies to us as we think about borrowing books. Please make sure that you return any books um, that are borrowed, but please do ask to borrow them because we should be generous and share. So, property matters. That's the first area it speaks to. The second area it speaks to is the issue of sexual purity. And here we come to verses 16 and 17. This here is an application of the seventh commandment. And the situation in view is one of consensual intimacy between two unmarried people. So it's not adultery, because neither of them are married in this situation, but it's still wrong. Why? Because sex is only for marriage. And the Bible is very clear that all sex outside of the marriage bond is both wrong and sinful. And if you have questions about that, encourage you to go and listen to the sermon on the seventh commandment where we saw that it extended to all sexual activity. Now remember, we're not going to apply the detail, but we're going to learn from the detail to see the principles. And you may have questions about the detail here. We'll just dig into a little bit. Because for Israel, in verses 16 and 17, God prescribes what should happen in this situation. And in that situation, it might be right to marry, the Lord says, if the man is able to pay the 
the principle they had established of the bride price, which would demonstrate that he was able to support a wife. But if the woman's father, or by implication she, won't consent, then a marriage doesn't happen. But, but even if the father refuses to allow the marriage, it's still a serious sin. Why do we see that? Because he must still pay the bride price, probably because having no, but no longer been a virgin, it would be harder for her to marry. So there is still a, still a penalty. Now let's be really clear. These verses do not teach that intercourse makes a marriage. But they do teach as a principle that sex is powerful and sex is for the marriage relationship and there only. It has consequences. Now, widespread contraception has encouraged a more promiscuous society. And in light of that, we need to constantly remind ourselves of the Bible's clear and unequivocal, unequivocal teaching, which is that sex is only for marriage without exception. Sometimes a couple might say to each other, well, we love one another. We're planning to get married. We've promised perhaps that we will and we're engaged. Surely, they say, it's fine for us to sleep together. It's not, friends. It's not. It's not because there is no such thing as only being married in the eyes of God. A marriage that happens, marriage needs to happen in a way that other people will recognize and respect. And in our country right now, that means a legal marriage. That is marriage. Promises made publicly and legally. Commitments made just to each other can be easily broken. Commitments made just to each other don't have a legal standing, and they don't include the protection of the difficulty of divorce. So be careful, friends, that you do not make up a narrative in your mind to justify the strong desires of your heart. Protect marriage and protect the intimacy, the marriage bond for marriage alone. God's word is clear. Live in holiness. Our third area, having thought about sexual intimacy, a third area we come to is the call to flee from idolatry. And here we come to verses 18 to 20, where three idolatrous actions are mentioned there, and all three attract the death penalty because they are all tied to idol worship. They're all calling upon, uh, they're an action that calls upon uh, or um, is seeking to, to, to gain favor from a pagan god to help you. And that's why they come with the most serious of sanctions, because they are kinds of idolatry. That's what's going on here. Now, as I've said already, we, we, we don't believe the same punishments should come about today. But just because the consequences might change, that does not mean the standard has. They are all still wrong. 
And as we think about what idolatry means, we need to be so sensitive to this, friends, don't we? Because we can miss it. And, and I've been challenged by the way some of our Indian friends have been concerned by pictures they've seen showing Hindu worship both inside and outside 10 Downing Streets. And that should trouble us. That should. We should see that as more serious than we do. Because the principle here in God's word is clear. That we are not to bow down to false gods by adopting similar practices to the worshippers of those gods. It is not sufficient to get involved in the idolatry and stand there with your fingers crossed behind your back and say, it's all okay. You can't do that, friends. John's warning in 1 John is ever so real and true. Keep yourselves from idols. And it's relevant today. So what idols do we need to look out for? Well, let's name a few. We have pop idols, don't we now? We call them that, which is kind of revealing, isn't it? (laughs) Few make trips to pagan worship temples, but millions go to Taylor Swift concerts to worship. And when you hear the reports of the adoring worship of the fans, and when you skim the lyrics, it's hard not to see that as idolatry. Pop idols will shape your heart. So many of Swiss lyrics are not honouring to the God of heaven, and neither are many of the songs sung by so many other popular singers as well. Think of George Ezra and others. Now, why are they not helpful? They're not helpful because they declare a worldview and a view of life that is a million miles from biblical Christianity. And the reality, friends, is this. They will shape your heart. I know that because it happened to me. I spent my early teen years as a young person before converted listening to a wide range of popular music and it took me decades to forget the lyrics. And we live in days, don't we, where there are so many more better options. We live in days when there is so much more we could listen to that would fill our hearts and our minds with truth and would dwell in us and would fill our imaginations and would keep on going through our heads, but it's biblical truth. So why do we look for other things? We have pop idols and we need to turn from them, but also we have sporting idols as well. It is possible for sport to captivate our hearts and fill our lives such that we are bowing down to it as well. And if sport stops us from coming to church, from spending time with God's people, and from honouring the Lord's day as the Lord's day, it indicates it's become too big, friends. I remember a number of years ago um, watching a rugby game, and it was, it, was, it was on a Saturday afternoon. Big t- okay, New Zealand All Blacks were playing, okay? They weren't playing England. Don't know why I was, but I was watching. And the commentator, as they were going down the line with the camera, taking in all of the players from the All Backs team, said this. The way a nation will feel the following morning is resting on the shoulders of those players. Something wrong, isn't there? There's something wrong. If the way we feel in the morning 
has been determined by how our team has done the following day before. There's something especially wrong if we're a Christian and the way we feel on Sunday morning is determined by anything that's happened in the results on Saturday. Friends, I know a godly pastor who stopped watching his favourite national rugby team live on TV because it affected him too much on the Lord's Day. And he said, I just can't do it. I will check the result through the week and I'll watch it a few weeks afterwards when no one cares anymore about the results. And it's done and dusted. Now that might seem drastic, friends, but it depends on how serious we're prepared to be about sin, does it not? It depends how we're going to preach, approach this, friends. So, flee from idolatry. God's word is so clear there. But then fourthly, we come to the subject of biblical justice. And that's the big section there in verse 21 of chapter 22, right through to verse 9 of chapter 23. And there's lots in here. It's not, not going to talk about it all. But in general, what's being picked up in these verses is the issue of fairness and prejudice. And here again, one of God's commandments is being applied, but it's the sixth commandment that's coming up here. Because the sixth commandment teaches us that all life is precious, has value, we should honour it, which means that we should treat all people with value and dignity and with fairness. And God is particularly concerned by how we treat those who are easily mistreated. Now note this, here in the Old Testament you often have three groups who are addressed again and again who are shorthand for all kinds of people who could be mistreated because you have the foreigners, the widows and the fatherless. And particularly those latter two, the widows and the fatherless, lack husbands and fathers to protect them. And so this is Bible shorthand for all easily exploited people. And true justice, and God calls us to true justice, is grounded in the character of God. It's grounded in his moral law and the Ten Commandments and what God teaches us there in those commandments. So as we think about justice, friends, can I just make a plea that we use biblical terms? And as far as I can see, social justice is not a biblical word. When people use it, it often links to non-Christian, secular ideas of justice that are worldly and not biblical. And instead, we need to be practicing biblical justice. So if you are burdened for justice, if that's something that really God has laid on your heart, and I hope it's something that God's laid on all of our hearts, maybe especially for some, can I encourage you not to get excited about worldly views of justice. Get excited about what God's word says about justice. Because it's so clear here, friends, that God calls us to great compassion for those in need. He cares deeply for all people and he wants us to be especially careful that we do not mistreat or exploit those who can easily be mistreated and exploited because of their circumstances. Now, where do we see that? Well, look at verse 21 and 22 where we're called not to oppress or to take advantage of those people who are likely to be mistreated. And then you have a number of situations where exploitation can particularly happen. Verse 25, in lending money to the poor, to lend money with interest to those who are particularly poor and needy is wrong because they can't afford to repay you. 
And, and, and do not, God says, do not take away, verses 26 and 27, essential items from them as guarantees. That's a wicked thing to do. We should not do that. But then notice that in verses 1 to 9, we're told how the legal system in particular, I think what's being applied here, should consider the needy. And we can't get into all the details, but I want you to see the balance in these verses that shows us a biblical view of justice. Because if you look at verse 3, you see there, you see verse 3, do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Now, isn't that interesting? (laughs) You expect perhaps to read the other way around. Yeah, you expect to read, don't show favoritism against a poor person. And as someone was reminding me this week, what is God doing here? God here understands our hearts. He knows how we will be tempted to respond unhelpfully and wrongly. And that will be to show favoritism when what we should do is show what? Fairness and justice. But... So we hold verse 3, but we also look at verse 6. And we must not, verse 6, deny justice to a poor person in their lawsuits. So again, as somebody else said to me this week, what should we do? We should do what is right. Let right be done. Let justice be done. But let it be biblical justice, the fairness that comes from treating all people with equal opportunity, and all in the eyes of God. What's the wider principle? The wider principle is be fair and offer equality of treatment to all. So the Bible is not here teaching affirmative action or positive discrimination. It's actually teaching equality of opportunity. God's word applies to every area of our lives, friends. And then just before uh, we come on to our second point, which is our fifth point, notice in verse 2, there's a great verse there for young people. Let's look at that verse. If you're a young person, I want you to memorize this verse. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Great verse to memorize if you're a young person, isn't it? Do not go along with the crowd in doing any wrong. Memorize that. And in particular, do not go along with the crowd in doing wrong in how you tell lies, speak on lack of truth about others. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard because peer pressure is huge and swimming against the tide is incredibly difficult. But hear this, and hear this particularly if you're a young person. Better to swim against the tide in purity and holiness than to swim with the tide in sinning against the God of heaven. Verse 2, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Friends, do you see what a treasure God's word is? Isn't it so, so obvious how David would say, oh, how I love your law. Oh, how your word guides me in truth. What an amazing treasure we have in the scriptures. And the more the word of God is in our hearts, the more we will be enabled to live for the Lord each day in every area of our lives. So we come on to our second point and we're going to see three brief things here because we've talked about four 
Practical ways of living a holy life. Now we're going to see three, and we'll see them briefly, I promise, motivations for holiness. And they're there in this passage, and the first is this. God doesn't just tell you what to do, he tells you why to do it, and he says, live in holiness, verse 21, because I have rescued you from Egypt. Chapter 22 and verse 21, and chapter 23 and verse 9 reminds the Israelites of what they knew in the past, and what they knew in the past was captivity in Egypt. They knew the mistreatment of Pharaoh, and God says, remember how I rescued you from that, and don't be like Pharaoh. Be different from him. And that should give the Israelites particular compassion to those around them. But the bigger principle here, and this is where I want us to dwell on as well, the one that that comes home to us, because we have not been in Egypt, have we, friends? But we have been in captivity to something else. Because remember, as we looked at the Exodus, we saw that captivity to Pharaoh is a picture of being captive to sin. And the way in which sin can control us such that we can't live the kinds of life that we long to live. And that is the experience of everyone who is outside of Christ. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are resting in Jesus Christ today, then God has rescued you. He has called you out of darkness. He has brought you into his glorious light and you are still called to live a life of holiness in light of that rescue. Not because that makes you a Christian, not because that's going to make you right with God. You believe, as Ian so helpfully said, in being right with God, being justified by faith alone. But then the sandwich in the middle is that life of holiness that flows from it. And God has rescued you from sin so that you might live that life of holiness. But I can't go on without asking the question, is that something you have known personally in your life? Is that something you have known? And maybe you're sat here today and you're thinking about all these different sins we've been talking about and you're thinking, Matthew, I can't break free of those things. Matthew, I feel like I'm in a straitjacket. I feel like Pilgrim with that burden on my back. What am I to do? Look to Jesus. Trust in him. Only Christ can bring you true freedom. Only Christ can bring you true change of life. Because only Christ can set you free from your sin. So look to him by faith and live that life of faith and repentance. Having lived, having been rescued, live as different. But then here's the second thing. God has saved us that we might live like this. But then secondly, we need to see that God really hates sin. Look down at verses 22 to 24. And they're solemn verses, are they not? Where God shows us his displeasure against sin. And he warns us that he will come in judgment. And if those verses offend you, then the judgment day, friends, is not going to measure on your scale of offence. The God of heaven... The God who is totally just and totally righteous. The God who made you, who gives you his good law, and who calls you to live in holiness. 
hates sin this much. And the great problem is, if we're really honest about our hearts, is that we treat sin lightly. We, we don't want to turn from sin and we don't want to grow in holiness because we do not see just how serious sin is. We treat it, well, we treat it like a plaything, something that's a bit shameful, that's not really serious. We kind of tolerate it like a naughty puppy that's a bit cheeky, but will learn one day. But friends, that is not how the God of heaven sees sin. And if you and I, as I trust we do, want to turn from it, we need to hate sin as much as God hates sin. Now hear that clearly. Not ourselves, our sin. You need to hate your sin. Because as you hate your sin, you will not want to live in sin. Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife's invitation to sin because he could not do what? Such an evil against God. And one key step in turning from sin and growing in holiness, and can I particularly say this, if you are struggling with sins that are habitual, that you are just going through again and again and again, and you think, how can I break free? To hate the sin is one of the key ways in which you begin to break free. Not the only way, but it's one of the key ways. We must hate sin. But then thirdly and finally, having been called and rescued by the God of heaven from our sin, we want to turn from our sin and all of its aspects, and then we come thirdly and finally, we want to be holy because God wants a holy people. Do you see that there, friends, in verse 31? You are to be my holy people. You are to be my holy people. That is a a great and a, a glorious Bible theme because the God of heaven is seeking a holy people. And his glory is displayed to the world as his people live holy lives. Now, if we can see that then we can see something of the greatness of this calling. You have, if you're a Christian, been saved from your sin. You have, if you're a Christian, been made right with God. You are, as Ian explained, covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so as God looks at you through the lens of what Christ has done on the cross, you are holy. But notice the Command in this verse is to be holy, having been made holy. That's the Christian life, to be holy. And just like, just like we are called to hate our sin, in our affections, we are called to love holiness. We're called to love it, to see, friends, that this is the feast This is the banquet, living a life of godliness, turning from sin. Sin is like going and eating at McDonald's. Holiness is like going and enjoying the Sunday family roast. Which one do you want? We want the roast, don't we? We want the roast. Amen. We want the roast. And so, as we follow this great Bible arc, and it is a great Bible arc, isn't it? It's calling to be a holy people. What do we find, and we we close with this thought, we find that the church today is called to the very same thing. 
The church today, those who are forgiven by faith, those who in Jesus Christ know no condemnation by faith, who have received the Holy Spirit, have that same great and glorious calling. And God has given you a new heart, Christian. God has given you a new nature by his Spirit so that you might live for this great God in all of your life. And so we do not agree with Lord Melbourne, who was Queen Victoria's first Prime Minister, who said this, if religion is going to invade a person's private life, things have come to a pretty pass. People say about what, sorry, what people say about puppies at Christmas is far more true of Christianity. Jesus Christ is for all of life because he is Lord of everything. And you have that same calling today because he is Lord as everything. And wasn't it significant? I didn't ask Andy to begin here, but he took us to First Peter, didn't he, as we started. And he took us to those verses that called us to be a holy people. And so as we close, let's rejoice in these verses. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for the wide and varied and good application of your word to our lives. We pray that you would help us in our hearts to rejoice in your truth, to love holiness and what is good and right, and to really hate sin, that we may turn from it. Thank you, for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in him. And we pray that our lives may increasingly reflect that holy life that you have called us to in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.